Well, welcome everyone. It's 2021 and the season's about to kick off and that means it's also time to kick off Life in the Peloton, new season 2021. I'm very excited. I'm very excited to be back with the cycling podcast again and I want to welcome my co-host here, Lionel Burney. Mate, welcome back to the series for another year. Thanks very much, Mitch. Well, welcome back for a second year collaborating with us on the Cycling Podcast. We're really excited to see what you've got in store for us for 2021. I'm very excited too. I felt like the the limits were pushed last year and we discovered a whole new way of doing things, which was great. But I'm going to start this year with a banger. I've got my good mate on there, Heinrich Hausler. He's an Australian, but he's also half German. It's a really interesting story. He's just an interesting guy, and I've been wanting to get him on on the podcast for a long time. Well, this is a rider whose career I know really well. I mean, it kind of pulled me up short to realise he's been a pro for 15 years now, uh, making me feel slightly senior. Turned pro for Gerolsteiner in 2005, and he's also ridden for the Cervelo test team, which became Garmin Cervelo after a merger. Rode a few years with I Am Cycling and currently with Bahrain, who are going to be called Bahrain Victorious this year, aren't they? And, uh, well, he's a, he's a sprinter, a classics man. British listeners may well remember Heinrich Hausler was the man that Mark Cavendish pipped by the narrowest of margins in the 2009 Milan San Remo. An absolutely fantastic finish. And that was a real um, purple patch for Hausler in the classics, wasn't it? Because he was also second at the Tour of Flanders and sixth at Paris-Roubaix that year. I think you're going to talk to Heinrich about his Tour de France stage win, his Aussie Championships win, and hold on for the end of the podcast because he also talks about cyclocross. And, uh, well, I was really interested to hear his views on cyclocross racing and particularly the rivalry between Van Aert and Van der Poel. Exactly. And he's even been there doing it himself. And that's what I found so interesting to hear his perception of the racing. So hang in for that. We preview the 2021 season as well. It's quite a long one, but there's a heap in there and I just couldn't stop him talking and I loved listening. So I hope you guys enjoy it too. Sit back, get comfortable and enjoy this one. I've got fellow countrymen here, coming to his 17th year professional, Heinrich Hausler. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thanks, mate. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I'm very happy to have you on this podcast because you are a guy that I've been wanting to have on here for a long time. And especially our reason I want to have you on the podcast is I really love what you are as a cyclist in terms of you're a guy who came through the old times, those times that I used to look at cycling as I was growing up. You were still racing in those times, and yet I got a chance to race with you, and now you're still, you've evolved through your whole career, and you're racing in these new modern times, which we've certainly seen the change over the last 10 years. So I hope you're ready for a big one, mate. Are you? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've settled in here. I've got a nice spot, so let's get into it. Well, let's go right back to the beginning. Let's talk about 2005. You're with Gerald Steiner, you're a Neo Pro, you're 21 years old. Let's talk about that first win. And not a lot of guys in their Neo Pro year get the chance to actually win a race. A few lucky guys do, let alone do they get a chance to ride a Grand Tour in their first year. So what you've done is, you've gone, let's just combine the both. I'll ride the Vuelta Espana, I'll get my first Pro win. I'll wait till stage 19, and I'll also do it in the stage that's nicknamed the day of the breakaways. I've sort of set it up, run me through what happened on that day, try and cast your mind back to it. 
the first win of your career back in 2005? Well, I mean, it, it, it actually might sound a little bit cocky and a little bit arrogant, but um, I actually went into the world to planning on winning a stage. I mean, I had really good form beforehand and uh, I had some good results beforehand too and uh, was a lot in altitude in Lavinia, working hard for the Welter. And uh, even leading up to stage 19, I had a few top 10 results. So I knew my form was good. Yeah, we got to stage 19 and everyone pretty much knew the GC is done. Next day, or not done, but the next day was a time trial. But all the big mountains were behind us and everyone pretty much knew, okay, today a big group's going to go up the road and it's going to make it to the finish. Straight away from the gun, there was attacks like crazy. After a couple of kilometers, I got into a big group. I've just done some recent reading on it. it. Was it was four guys that went up the road, and this huge group went away with with all these stellar names in it. You know, you had Gert Stegmans was in there, Martin Ilminger was in there, um, and the two groups stayed apart for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was on, it was it was on from the word go, massive or two groups. And I remember already on the first climb. Uh, like I, I seriously, I, I I was out the back. I, I practically I practically got dropped, and I was like, oh my god, this kind of cannot happen. You know, this uh, you know the team in the meeting already beforehand. Like, you know, we need a rider up there. We hadn't won a stage, and um, you know we needed to represent the team. And I was just thinking, no, I can't get dropped now. I can't get dropped. Luckily, in the downhill, uh, I, I got back on. And to be honest, I had really bad legs at the start. Just throughout the stage, um, you know, there was more attacks, more attacks. The, the groups got smaller, the group got smaller, more attacks, more attacks. And just it somehow, I always ended up coming back to the, fir- to the first group. I never was in the first group that actually broke away. Mm-hmm. I was always like playing catch up. can't remember, eight kilometers to go. I still, the, the front group was still out front and I was still playing ca- catch up. And we rode across together with um, Elminger. I knew how strong Elminger was then. To be honest, at that age, I was riding very, very smart, if I think back now, because I was, like, letting him do the work. I was, like, I remember saying to him, I was, like, mate, I'm a Neo. Like, you want, you want to win, you're going to have to close it yourself. But the thing is, <laughs> so the, was- thing, the thing is, Hino, you, yes, you were a Neo, but what I understand from that, Fuelta, was you were starting to really find your, find your legs in the sprints. Like, Pataki was sort of doing his thing there but you were running top 10 a couple of times in the sprints and in those days the sprints were i'm not saying the sprints have slowed down but they were a different style of sprint then and if you could compete against pataki back in those days you had sprinters legs so surely he was thinking oh god i've got this young fast guy with me or was he just a bit too like ah i've got this guy wrapped up well i think he i mean on the day to be honest he was the strongest he maybe underestimated me yeah, I don't know. I mean, because we rode together in, in IAM together. And mm. we... Did you talk <laughs> about often, it? We, we talked about it and <laughs> we sent each other pictures. And, because uh, Martin, he's also, he's been second a couple of times all in all Grand Tours. So he's actually mm. never won a Grand Tour so far. Oh, no. So we, we, used, we used to joke about it a lot. Yeah, we, we came across, uh, yeah, with like, I remember three, four Ks to go. Pretty much knew we were gonna we were gonna reach the finish. There were a few guys behind us, but they were just too far back. Then um, it started to play a little bit catch and mouse. Then I remember the young guy from uh, Lampra, uh, Fuentes. Yeah, he went off the front with about one k to go. Automatically, I don't know why. It was just instinct, or I mean, I don't know why yeah. I'd done it. I was just like I had this thing in my head. I was like, I know you just have to not necessarily close the gap but you have to at least accelerate and keep the pace high, otherwise it's over. I went, I accelerated, I kept the speed high, I didn't close the gap, 
we went through a bridge and then it was all it was a slight climb all the way to the finish mm. and then um i just kind of with like 500 meters to go i kind of like kind of acted like i couldn't close a gap anymore then elminger he took over and um i was on i was on last position then and i was pretty much I, seriously i said in my head i was just like yeah mate thanks that's it i got this one wrapped up because and, even uh, though yeah. you say that it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the the it was still quite a close sprint and the way that you did the sprint i want you to tell that story now too is it was quite a, an impressive sprint considering it was only a three-up sprint it ended up being quite chaotic yeah look to be honest i was also lucky the the other guy from valencia the valencia team that he didn't close the door on me otherwise i would have been in trouble like the whole day luck was on my side the mm. the door opened and uh yeah i i got, I got through and i had a you know half a wheel uh advantage over elminger and won the stage and yeah that was it there was, it was even it was so funny because even before we talked um one of the mechanics from our team now with um Ryan, he was working with the team back then and um he texted me because i needed something from him and he said yeah no worries and at the end he's like yeah no worries monkey business and that's because they used to call me that at the beginning of the team because when i used to celebrate i just i just go nuts <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, so I know, it's today monkey business. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was, it was amazing. I can't, I can't believe it's, it's, it's already like, you know, 17 years ago. It's just, it, it really, it also kind of just feels not like yesterday, but like last year. Yeah. And I, even though time has passed that, so many years has gone past, I still don't feel like that older rider. I mean, I should, mm. I should, but I don't. I remember back then also, you know, you'd look around the peloton and you'd see guys like 32 or 33. You'd be like, oh, my God, they're so old. What are they doing here? Mm. But, you know, it's like just time goes past so quick. And that's what I wanted. That's why I wanted to bring this story up because I thought it's a perfect story for me. When I started reading through your <clears throat> results and started understanding a little bit more about you than what I already knew, I was like, oh, my God, this actually fits Hino, this, this result. In his first year... He, you know, he wins a Grand Tour stage. And as your career went on, and the time that I sort of started to get to know you was in 2009 when you were with Cervelo Test Team. And that was sort of the, again, the, for me, the unveiling of this, this guy, Heinrich Hausler, in the classics. And I started to think, like, this is perfect fit for you because the, the way that you sort of major way on the scene was this like wow this this monkey business sort of like you just showed the world and later on in your career not i'm not saying between 2005 and 2009 nothing happened but when i first started to get to know you was like whoa heinrich hausler who the hell's this guy you know and that's when i started to understand you but before that what people have got to know you as is this guy who's been known to be called the australian german cyclist and I want to go back a little bit more now in history and talk about before you became a pro. And with that comment, the Australian-German cyclist, how do you see yourself? Well, uh, that's absolutely, that is a really good question. The best way to answer it is if I had the, if I had the chance to represent a country at a World Championships or an Olympics, then it's, it's uh, definitely going to be for Australia. Like deep down, I'm Australian and I'm always going to be Australian. I, uh, I live in Germany. My wife's German. I mean, my kids are born here in Germany. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love living here, but but for sure, deep down, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% Aussie. Well, tell me about that upbringing that you had in Inverell, in northern New South Wales, 
because as everyone's listening to this, Hino just sounds like an Aussie, and that's because you lived in um, Inverell, New South Wales, in, until you're age 14, and then you went across and pursued your dream to become a pro cyclist in Germany. Is that sort of how it happened? What, what's that story there? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I grew up in Inverell. It's a pretty pretty small country town in New South Wales. Actually, has a lot of lot of cycling history. There's actually been a few pros that came from 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 Inverell. Who else? Uh, Scott Sunderland. Uh, also, um, Scott Sunderland's brother, his son Dylan Sunderland. He's also a pro now with um, NT. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it called now? And the new uh, how, how is it? Quebec Azos. They're, just in general, there's been a lot of talent and a lot of good young riders that have come from that area. So it's not like it came out of the blue. Uh, my dad was also a cyclist back in the day, more more just to, to keep fit and go out with the boys on the Sunday morning and uh, do a few club races and stuff like that. I, I got a bike for Christmas when I was six. Two weeks later, there was this small like, uh, like a club race. Uh, I, I, I took part in the race uh got third you know back then i was like six years old got a medal got five bucks took it to school show and tell thought it was cool and that's how it started year by year got more and more serious obviously my name is heinrich so it's a german name and my dad he's german so he he moved he moved over to australia when he was fairly young and um he's been living there ever since so i've got dual citizenship or i did back then anyway and um, at the age of 13, we um, came to Germany for a holiday for six weeks. Mm. Um, First time you'd been to Germany. And um, obviously having dual citizenship, it was easy for me to get like a, a German license and I could just race here normal, do kind of all the national races and stuff like that. The, everything went really good. Like I won a lot of races. What did you think of Germany in those days? Like first experience of it you probably obviously you know had formed this opinion of it through your father and never being there and living in australia and then when you finally got to germany was it sort of everything you'd hoped it had been or was it better or was it worse or what was your first uh, opinion of it oh mate it's, it was it, it was not normal it was like back back obviously cycling in australia has completely changed over the last 20 30 years or even the last 10 years but i mean back then when i was like 10 11 12 you know we'd, we'd travel like 800 900 kilometers down to Wagga Wagga or down to Victoria just to do a, a 20 kilometer handicap race you know yeah it was ridiculous and there'd be like 14 guys on the start line so if you're lucky and we came to Germany in my first race there was 280 kids on the start line <laughs> oh my god it, mate it was not normal it was like nothing I've ever seen before in my life like of, of course a little 14 year old, uh, 13 year old standing on the start line with in like and not just in our division like you know all the other divisions and it was just like this massive bike festival obviously also cycling back then in Germany was also a lot more than what it is now but it was absolutely crazy and epic and I actually won that first race what year would have that been uh, I'm would have- 36 now so that was 23 years ago 1998. Oh, wow. Yeah, it would have been in the prime of Team team Mobile. Oh, yeah. You know, like I remember also even like the, 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 the juniors or the under-23 riders that, you know, they'd be rocking around with their, all the cool kit, like the bikes. <laughs> like back then, I don't know, like the, the, the Shamal, Campac Shamal wheels or – Yeah, yeah. It was just like in a – not in a dream, but it was just like you, you'd, you'd ride around or you'd walk around and your jaw was just 
hanging because you're like, it's yeah, it was just in a complete different world. Did you feel and- overwhelmed? And I know you said that you won your first race, but I, even if I compare it to my first experience, I came out to just a local club race and I was very much behind the eight ball just at the club racing scene and I felt very amateur. Um, to the guys who had just raced for five or six years. I can't even imagine going across to Germany, the home of European cycling, and then these guys got better equipment, but they just would have looked pro, I guess. And did you feel amateur or were you sort of moving along pretty good? Your dad sort of sort of geared you up as well. Well, yeah, that's the thing. My, 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 my parents and especially my dad, they, I mean, oh, man, he, he, would, he gave his last cent for me for traveling for hotels, mm-hmm. equipment, shoes, helmets, clothing. It was like... I mean, I wouldn't be here or I wouldn't be the person I am without my parents and especially my dad. He, he's an absolute legend. Mm. Like, he's, he's someone, that, someone that I look up to and I'm, I'm proud to say that he's my father because he believed in me 120% and he pushed me all the way. I, I have a lot of him in me. And mm. to be honest, I, I love it and I'm proud of that because uh, I wouldn't have experienced the things that I've experienced. You know, it's, uh, I'm not saying if, you stay, if you're born in a small country town in Australia that that you just stay there, but it, it is kind of that, you know, either you're smart yeah. and you leave early, you go to the big cities or you kind of, you know, you just kind of stay there. And so, I mean, I've experienced already so much and seen so much in my life. I want to, I don't want to um, fast forward too much of your early career because I, I love what you just said then. You win your first race with, you know, who, who knows how many starters, but I want you to take me from there through those ranks, which ultimately saw you did you stagiaire with telecom yeah because for me that's just like the absolute pinnacle if you look at the team in 2004 that would have been you know you've got all the rock stars on there all the guys that i sort of admired and i can imagine you being german heritage would have loved also you got cloden on there you got Ulrich. you've got you know andreas clear you've got aldag the list goes on so they're all there so tell me sort of like those years between that first race there and that love for it that you got with the win and then suddenly going back to australia and then going you know what i need to be in germany if i want to become pro yeah so uh we were there only for six weeks for the holiday like i said i I had a lot of success and um we went back home to australia so that was also actually my, my dad's first time that he went back to Germany after, I don't know, maybe like 25, 30 years. The year later, we, I, I, I went over by myself for four weeks, also just doing racing. At age 14? Yeah. And then uh, I, I, got, I got picked up, uh, or I didn't get picked up. A team said, look, we'd, we'd like to that you come to our sports uh, college and ride for our team. And um, we were like, yeah, for sure. That's, you know, this is why I'm here. I want to turn pro and, you know, in, in Europe, uh, what better place? And so I went back home, packed up all my stuff, got everything ready, <laughs> came, came back over. And uh, the, the school that I was originally supposed to go to, only then they found out that I couldn't speak any German. So back then I couldn't speak any German whatsoever. None, not and even got, like a little bit with, through your dad. Oh, no, nothing. All right. Nothing. They, they would have kind of sponsored me. I would have been in the national team. So it would have all been funded from the from the national team and everything. So I had to do my schooling there and everything. And they were like, yeah, look, if you don't speak German, then you can't do schooling. And we're not going to be able to keep you in the, in the college. So I was pretty much stranded. Got over there. I was like, oh, no, I can't stay here. So I ended up staying um, with a friend of my dad. 
started to go to like a foreigner school, slowly started to learn the language. And in that time, still racing, racing every weekend. And then where I ended up originally was in Cottbus. They said, look, come, we don't really care if you, <laughs> if you can't speak German yet. Just uh, come, come to our team or come to our sports school. And then, yeah, within a couple of weeks, I was in Cottbus, and that's. Were many much people why. speaking? Were many people speaking English? Like, how were you communicating? Only through the, the the friend of my father. His name was Oliver. So Oliver, he would you know take me to the races, and then also at the races, like he would get the number and do everything. I mean, I didn't really speak at all. I only I didn't have any friends, so I just I was just riding my bike. It was terrible. Uh, even got like going to this foreign school. I, you know, I had no friends. It was just like, to be honest. The first year, I was just homesick like crazy. Yeah, you know, I just, geez. I just wanted to go home. It was terrible. Even in Cottbus, you know, I ended up because in the cycling class they didn't have any any more spots free because it was full. They ended up putting me in, in the in the soccer class, and and obviously the soccer players and the cyclists they absolutely hate each other. So I just used to get picked on and bullied. It was and I, every night I just ring my mum and I just like beg her like please let me come home. And my old man he's just like no. Fuck, you, you have to stay there. You have to tough it out. Just give it a go. It was terrible, mate. I didn't have any friends. I couldn't speak the language. Experiencing my first, like, real cold winter, the food, it was just that stuff like that makes you older quicker or more mature quicker. Tell me a little bit about the school because I think this is a pretty foreign thing to, uh, I guess, non-Germans is that a sporting school and how, like you said, there's a cycling class and a, and a soccer class. How did that all work? What, what did you actually... You just did the classes with the guys you essentially were going to train with outside of schoolwork. Is that right? We say here in Germany it's like a sport internat, so kind of like a sports college, similar maybe to the AIS if you can kind of mm-hmm. compare it, but obviously a lot smaller and for juniors. So you'd also you you would you would sleep there on the complex. So there's there's there was two big buildings where all the athletes sleep. There was like oh, athlete, a big athletics complex, uh, a velodrome, boxing halls, and hundreds and hundreds of kids, you know, like all top athletes. Kind of like, I don't know, kind of like, I don't know, it's just like the old East German style sports school, you know, just where you go, you go to school from seven until one o'clock so that you have time to train in the afternoon. You know, in the canteen and stuff, you kind of couldn't, like uh, sometimes if you watch a film, like, you know, where little kids, they stand there with their plates waiting for the food and then the big guys come in, the bullies, and, you know, they just knock you over or stuff like that. It it's, it's exactly like that. It was, it was uh, like I said, you had to grow up. It made you grow up quick. Quick. Well, are all pros, all German pros from sort of your era and before your era came through that system or were there a few guys who didn't come through that system or you sort of had to come through that way? I mean, there, there, there were a few guys that came through that, that didn't come through that system, but I'd say 90% of them, they did, you know, especially mm. the East part, like, uh, I don't know, Tony Martin, Degenkolb, Kittel, or even the, 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 the times before that, you know, there's so many other pros like, I don't know, like Thomas right. Siegler, Sebastian Lang, the Fortin brothers, and then you go back more, it's like Polar, Kondo. Ulrich. All, all, yeah, all the, all the guys, you know, yeah, Kuiper. Okay. Wow. Whose guys who didn't come through there? Uh, for example, one guy is, I think, Marcel Seebeck. Oh, yeah. He's the only guy I, that I can picture in my head now that hasn't. Wegeman? Fabian Wegman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wegman, yeah. Wegman, he's a Westie. He's a Westie. So, that, you know, even then it was still like East German, West German. You know, it's like, oh, you're an Eastie. 
Yeah. <laughs> the Easties were still kind of like in that old system, like train really slow, big gear, heart rate low, but just long. You know, already when I was 14, 15, I was doing six, seven hour rides. You know, it was, it was not normal. I came from Australia doing like, you know, going out with my dad, training after school, doing 30Ks, coming okay. to Germany on the weekends doing the 150, 180, 200 kilometers. You know, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was not normal. It was just like, but yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, that, that system back then, it, it somehow it, it worked. But this, aside from the fitting in side of things and missing home, and this is this is very obvious stuff, but you know, very hard, and a lot of people don't necessarily understand unless they're in that situation. The sporting side of things, you still loved, and like you say, it was six hours a day. But what the feeling I'm getting is, you were like, "Nah, this is what's keeping me here. This is actually my release." Was that sort of right? Oh yeah, for sure. The thing is, my goal was, or my dream was, to turn pro. And uh, it's also uh, leaving everything behind at such an early age is also a big step. You know, it's like it, was, it wasn't easy, but it was like you've got to, I've got to give it a go. And the thing was I was very successful already very early on when I came to Germany and then uh, I got swept up directly in the national team. So I was also doing a lot of international races with the national team. After a year or so, I started to speak the language and then things really started to get better. Year by year, I felt more and more. I won't, I wouldn't say German, but I felt more kind of at home. I had dual citizenships, and and when I was doing the board championships, actually, I was riding for Germany and not Australia. And that felt that felt fine for you at those times. You were you consider yourself as a German at that point, or do you always feel like you know what I'm doing this to become professional, and I am still an Aussie? To be honest, back then I didn't really even think about it like that. When yeah. I was a junior, I probably I think you probably can say the same thing. You know, if you're in the national team, you're always going to the same races. You have, you're always the, the same kind of group of riders, very tight. Mm. And you know, at the races, you know, you also you're in the other guys' rooms at night. You're joking around, you're doing stuff. So you have a, like a really great bond. And um, for us, it was just about there going out on the road and trying to win races. So we, mm. we were just we were just having fun. So I didn't really see it as like putting on the jersey and representing Germany. Tell me about what then it seems like now was the obvious step then to move into Team Mobile uh, or Telecom, I think, well, I, I, whatever it was called at that point, I guess Team Mobile, and then and then into Gerolsteiner, which was also a German team. Did that just feel right for you? Was there any decision in that? Or how did that all happen when the, the day actually came for you to turn pro, live the dream? Well, it, 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 it did come pretty quick. I was only in my second year um, under 23s when um, I got to, the chance to stagiaire with um, T-Mobile. It was uh, at Rheinland-Pfalz uh, one fight. I mean, that that was massive. I mean, back yeah. then, you were, everyone, like, oh, you, you know, you, they had the Audi cars, they had the Adidas uh, <laughs> tracksuits, you know, the bikes, everything. They had the... <laughs> The, the the phones, you unlimited calls, and everyone wanted just to uh, be with oh, Team Mobile, okay. and not nothing against Gelsteiner, but not necessarily Gelsteiner were more like kind of second league. Yeah, it was, it was it was like a dream, and you know, and then racing with the guys, with the pros, it was it was it was pretty epic. It was wearing something, the kit, wearing the pink kit, would have yeah. Oh yeah, it just it was unbelievable. And but I was so overwhelmed, so shy, like I, I just couldn't get a word out of it, you know, like even at the dinner table and stuff like that, just I, I couldn't, you know, you're like speechless, you're like, like just super, super shy, you know, normally you see 
all these guys on TV or at the Tour de France or whatever, and then you're sitting at the dinner table with them, or especially in in, in the bus before the race, just just mm. looking at them, you know, what they do, or what they do before the race, how they talk with each other and stuff like that. It was just, uh, yeah, it was pretty pretty special back then. I already had a um, an offer from Gelsteiner, but I wanted to ride for T-Mobile, so it was it was a big a shit fight. You know, I had a big big fight mm. with my trainer over this because. He was the one actually that um, suggested me to Gelstein and got me the the offer. And then after after the season finished, I was like, no, I want to. You know, I had the offer on the table, and that was already then. He's like, no, Heino, look, you had the offer for them. You said you were going to go. You can't you can't turn this down. You know, mm. you did you didn't shake hands. You haven't signed anything, but you said you're going to go. You don't do that. Yeah. And so I ended up um, uh, signing with Gelsteiner. Which, um, which I think was also, I mean, it was also, it was amazing. It was also a very special moment, you know, just turning up to the first team meeting or to the first training camp. You know, you'd, you normally, as an under-23 rider, you do the races. You're used to, you know, pre- pretty much doing everything yourself, washing your kit after the races in the sink or putting oil on the legs before the race and then turning up to the, the first training camp and there's just like these two massive boxes just full of clothes and stuff. It's just... It was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you went you probably went through the same yourself. It was, it's, it's just in a different world. It's just it's just exactly what you say. It's, um, you know, <clears throat> only first turn pro with a pro continental team, Skill Shimano, and even that for me was overwhelming. It was just, um, you know, even just for me to see the endless amount of caskets, I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around that. I thought, yeah, I was, I was pretty disappointed when I went to my kit bag that they gave me a suitcase and there was no caskets in there. And I asked the director, I said, yeah, he goes, is everything okay with the kit? And I thought, yeah, it's okay. He goes, what's wrong? I said, well, there's no, there's no hat. I didn't know what casket was. I said, there's no mini hat in there. He's like, after a couple of minutes explaining what a mini hat was, he was looking at me. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, the hats. He goes, come with me. And he took me to the bus and opened up one of the things and literally a hundred hats fell out. And I was just like, oh my gosh. So I know exactly what you mean. It's just, it's an amazing, it's an amazing moment when you, when you've dreamt of that dream and, and, it, and it starts to come true. Those little aesthetic things are just sort of what makes it really real. Well, that's the voice of Seb Piquet, the familiar voice of Seb Piquet um, from Race Radio at the Tour de France, interrupting the conversation between Henrik Hausler and Mitch Docker. Fascinating one it is too. To remind me to tell you that it is sponsored by Harry's. Now, Orla, for the last year, we've only seen each other on a screen. <laughs> yeah. Now here we are in the flesh. I am in the flesh. This is me in the flesh. Yeah, I know. So you can actually <laughs> see for yourself uh, how smoothly shaven I am without any uh, but, pixels. Yeah, well, I always assumed it was a pixels before, and now I can see it's just, um, <laughs> okay, just that's hair enough. poking through. Moving on. <laughs> you haven't been using your Harry's razor, Richard. I have, Orla. Oh. I have. This is a couple of days shadow. Um, but I thought yesterday, did you not feel that my Harry's shave was looking particularly <laughs> I didn't immaculate. feel anything. We're socially distancing. <laughs> I've got to come and rub your cheek for you. Anyway. I'm a big fan of Harry's razors, as you as you know, and uh, we're very pleased to have them sponsoring the cycling podcast. Uh, they're offering a trial set uh, to our listeners. If you want to give Harry's a go, 
um, you can get a weighted ergonomic handle, the new five blade razor cartridge, rich lathering shave gel, travel blade cover uh, to protect your blades on the move. And for a limited time only, if you go to harrys.com forward slash cycling, you'll also receive a free travel sized shower gel. Uh, all of this is worth £14.50, but you'll pay just £4.95 for the postage. Um, and we will be all travelling. We have travelled here, but we will all be travelling soon, I'm sure. So it's uh, well worth the investment. Um, get the comfortable shave you deserve. Head to harrys.com forward slash cycling to claim a trial set for just £4.95. You'll also be supporting the cycling podcast by doing so. Again, head to harrys.com forward slash cycling today. I want to talk about, not to fast forward too much past girls' time, but what I want to talk about is now when I, like I spoke about before, when I first became aware of who you were, and it was my first race, my first race as a pro, 2009, Tour of Qatar, and this team rolls out, Cervelo Test Team, and all of a sudden, no one controls Tour of Qatar. If anyone knows that race or remembers it, it was just a, a hell race. You sat on the back of the bumpers of the, the car, for the neutral, <clears throat> the car slowly got you up to speed to about 50k an hour. Once the car stepped off, everyone sprinted. You got in an echelon after about 1k, and that was your race. <laughs> and you swapped off. And if you were lucky, there was two or three guys from your team there. If you were quick step, you maybe had four, maybe five. No team had their whole team there, except Cervelo Test Team. And for me, looking on at this team, I remember thinking, wow, that's the team I want to get in. Tell me about Cervelo. Oh, mate, that's probably the highlight of my career, to be honest. Uh, Something I'll never forget. And also, to be honest, it's also something I'm still searching for. I'm still looking for. I'm still looking for this this team, this this atmosphere, this, this, uh, I don't know, like a family. And if you would speak to any other rider in that team, they will say exactly the same. I don't. I have no idea why it gelled so quickly and why things went so great. But it was something, just something special. It was just. It started in Qatar. Our main guy, our main leader, Andreas Clear. I think pretty much all of us we learned everything from him. But the thing was also, it wasn't just Andreas. We also had Roger Hemmen. We had Tor Husov, Gabriel Rush. You know, the, the, these are these are guys that have been around for a long time. Jeremy Hunt. It was just it, we we went out there and we just had fun. And also in the echelons, it's not like some teams that they done a lead out to the corner. It was just like every man just fought for himself, and it's just like mm. I have to be there, otherwise I'm letting my teammates down. It just somehow worked, and it was unbelievable. And I think also anyone that was seen the team or seen the way we raced, especially in Qatar, they they would say the same thing. They were like, for sure, oh, for sure these guys got motors in their bikes or something or something's not going on. That rolled on for me until what I was talking about before, this rebirth of Heinrich in the classics or this birth, what I think. You know, that year was a very special year for you personally with some big results in the Belgium classics and you were some great results, especially in the opening weekend. It was like, wow, I specifically remember this clip of you riding up the Paderstraat and just flicking around and just just being in complete control. You were second in San Remo, 
the following year. Was that 2010, actually? No, 2009. In- 2009, second in San Remo, yep. second in Tour of Flanders, and sixth in Roubaix. So, like, it was just like bang, 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 bang. Things were just rolling. That was off the back of this teamwork you're talking about. You had the form to seal the deal as well. Tell me what it felt like then to suddenly being like, I'm actually a player now. I'm a player in these races I wished I could be, and now I'm actually doing it. It Also, it came very unexpected the the last couple of years with gelstein i mean yeah i won a few races every now and then but i just i didn't i couldn't back up the, my first two years you know where gelstein was like oh yeah this is a big classic guy or this big talent is coming through the ranks he's going to be really really good then uh, my last two years at gelstein i just kind of slept uh, slipped off a bit you know i got everything let everything get to my head wasn't training properly and just took everything for granted just thought oh yeah i'm just going to get better and better but obviously it didn't. I was finding it very, very hard to even find a contract uh, once Gelsteiner stopped. And I was lucky enough to, um, like I said before, Scott Sunderland, he comes from Embraer. Uh, he helped put the team together back then, the Savella Test team. And uh, my manager got in contact with him and said, hey, look, can you give this guy a chance? Uh, because the team started also very late in the year and they were still looking for some riders. And uh, they were like, yeah, okay, we'll give him a shot. We'll give him, we'll give him a two-year deal. And I was like, oh, yeah, so kind of like a, like a lifesaver, you know. I knew I had to pull myself together. So, and like guys like, for example, Carlos Sastra, he won in the year before, he won the Tour de France. Tor Hussov coming into the team, I was like, man, this is going to be a big team. Like, you know, if I, <laughs> if I want to race with these guys, I'm going to have to pull my head in and get my act together. I really started training really hard in the winter. Uh, I was actually in St. Moritz doing a lot of cross-country skiing. Uh, always on the weekends, I'd drive down, do a bit on the bike, just for the spinning, for the legs. Training super, super hard. And then already in the training camp in January, we turned up and I just had really good form. And, we, you know, we'd do all the intervals. I'd be super strong. Then uh, do some, like, race simulations. And also everything went really well. And then in Qatar, everything went really well. Uh, I think I ended up getting second overall. So already then I kind of showed the team, okay, look, I've got good legs. Uh, I'm, mm. I'm not such a shit rider. Then we went to Algarve and I actually won two stages. And then the team's kind of like, oh, yeah, look, he's actually, he, he could be maybe good. For the classics also. So not just Tor, but, you know, also, you know, we'll have Hino as maybe like a backup or something. If Tor, in case he has a flat tire or he crashes or he has an off day, maybe Hino can jump in. And then it was just like... News, news blood or uh, uh, had news blood we rocked up uh, and I don't know if you remember back then it was the old course was always the same you got it's called the Dendermonde turn left on the top you come down and then you turn right into the Tyneberg all the teams wanted to get in the gutter obviously because it's quicker than on the mm-hmm. cobbles and so everyone knew this like this was the point where you had to be in the front and I remember uh, five guys from Rubble Bank, they went around the corner first, went into the gutter. I was on sixth position, and then we, we, we were off. I think there was like uh, five Rubble Bank guys, me and one other. And I remember on the next climb just being super cocky, and I just attacked them. And then me and Sebastian <laughs> Langefeld, <laughs> and pretty much me and Sebastian Langefeld, we just were almost, I mean, yeah, we did go to the finish, and uh, I think we got caught with 200 meters to go. Tour won the race. Everything went perfect. Everything just played into our, in, into our hands. It was uh, back then. It was a little bit like playing PlayStation. It was everything just went perfectly, yeah. and it wasn't just 
me or Tor, you know, every now and then, like Jez Hunt would jump in, Roger Hammond would jump in, for, especially for Rebay, even Andreas, he, you know, like we, the team had so much depth and strength and also experience. Like Andreas Clear for us, he, you know, he, he, was, he was our sport director. He would pretty much just speak in the radio, no, no, no offense to the sport directors back then, but they were just there to drive the car, you know, in case we had a flat tire. <laughs> It was it was unbelievable. It was something like I said, something I'm still searching for. Obviously, you can't compare it to Quickstep or other teams, but yeah, it's just something I won't forget. And like I said, it's like something also. Once I stop cycling, you know, I want to stay in cycling, and it's something I would like to obviously not copy, but this this atmosphere try and create that like this experience, mm. so that athletes or the younger riders that come up. That they have this 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 experience like a, a real team, you know, a real real team, where the guys go I mean, out there and they they fight for each other. And- I, I get I get the feeling that it was it had this atmosphere also because it was a mix of countries, you know, and we get this very much in cycling. But for me, it was very attractive because there was Australians in it, there were British in it, but there was also Europeans and. It was the it was sort of that beginning of what we see quite commonly now, especially with the team I'm in now. It's a big a big mix, and a lot more Australians coming across, a lot more Americans. But I'm not talking. It's not so long ago, but in 2009, it wasn't. Apart from sort of US Postal, which was Trek, then you know, there, a lot of the other teams were very very European based, and also the way they operated. And the feeling I got with the with Cervelo Test team, they were just sort of just that little bit different, and. I don't know that for sure, but just listening to you and, and from the outside, the the feeling was that as well. Yeah, definitely. It definitely was a mix. Of, I mean, yeah, there was almost none of us were from the same country. So especially the classics group or the sprint group, it was, you know, we turned up to the race. It was just like, bang, you know, happy to see the guys. Come on, let's go for a ride. We'll go out and have a coffee, have a laugh. And then, you know, come race day, you know, we just knew what we needed to do. You know, we didn't need, we didn't even really need to even speak to each other. You just looked at it. You could just kind of read, mm. read, read what he was saying, what he was thinking. You got to tell me now about what I think is, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here. What I think is maybe the pinnacle of your career, and one of the the best moments I think, which was so fitting to do it with Cervelo, the stage you won in the Tour de France, coming into Colmar, which was about 30k from where you lived. It was an epic stage. It didn't necessarily suit you, I didn't think. It was very hilly, and the way you won was cold. It was wet. You're with good company. Sylvain Chavanel was with you. I want you to tell that story and what that really meant to you and why it was so important, that win. It's something I won't forget, obviously. You, also, as a kid, you know, you, you grow up thinking, okay, I want to be a pro. And, you know, to also to win a stage at the Tour de France, there's not many pros can, can say that they've done it. But I remember also, you know, being a little kid, my dad also having friends back then in the cycling community. And then, you know, you'd be, you'd be up late watching tv with all the guys you'd always fall asleep because it was super late but remember like you know like watching these guys on tv at the tour de france and like and then i don't know everything on the day also went perfect you know we went we went into the tour de france as uh, with carlos sastra as our gc guy uh, the defending champion from the year before tour Husoff to go for the green jersey so i already i already knew 100 percent my my role was clear to be there for tour absolutely sacrificed all my own chances of having a go at anything. And I almost didn't get picked for the tour because uh, I'd done a really bad lead out in, in Swiss and me and Tor had a bit of a, I wouldn't say a fight, but a, an argument. He wasn't happy with my lead out 
because he thought <laughs> I was saving myself. And so I almost only at the last moment I got picked for the tour, and that was pretty much like saying, huh. you know, ringing ringing tour and saying, look, mate, I'm there for you. I'm going to be 100% there for you to help you to win the green jersey. And then pretty much then I got the green light from the team. And then um, it came, uh, I remember stage 12 uh, was also a breakaway. Nicky Sorensen won. It was like 38 degrees. I remember it was like an absolute scorcher, just like really humid. And I hate, I hate the heat. Like I'm a really, I love the cold. I love the classics, you know, like really filthy, dirty weather, wet, wind. The team manager comes into my room before, after stage 12 and he's like, Heino, you seen the weather forecast for tomorrow? And I was like, no. It's like, it's your weather. And I didn't think anything of it. I was just like went to massage and done, done, went to dinner. We woke up the next morning and it was absolutely filthy. So we were, we were already pretty much on just on the on the ridge of the, the mountains. It's called the, the Vogues, the Vogues. So it was like, seriously, the day before was like 38 degrees. And the next day down in the, in the mainland on the flats was like 12 degrees and rain. How is this possible? You know, there's such a big weather yeah. difference. Horrible. So anyway, the team manager comes to me and says, uh, okay, Hino, if you want to have a chance, today's your day. So I was like, oh, yeah, awesome, awesome. You hadn't actually thought about this stage before, like being the finish quite close to your home. That had nothing really to do with it. It just became special as the day rolled on. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, already you've seen uh, – we've seen the, 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 the Tour de France, um, the, the, the course – so, I mean, and we already before, like during the season, we went over there, we went training because Fabian Bigman, he also was running for a different team. You know, he, him also living in Freiburg, he also was like, oh, yeah, I'd like to have a go at this stage. So, you know, we'd go over there and we'd train on the climbs, we'd do the downhills, we'd just get, we'd just get familiar with the area also because mm. it's not that far from, from, from here, Freiburg. But obviously what happened in Tour de Suisse, I was like straight up, I was like, you know, nah, you know, I just... Uh, Forget about everything. And then, yeah, okay. yeah, then the team manager in the morning is like, okay, I know if you want to have a go, today's today's your chance. So kilometer zero, I remember being on Christophe Moreau's uh, back wheel and he just took off. And I, I just I just followed the wheel like thinking nothing, like absolutely thinking nothing. Then uh, we were actually quite a big group, not, not super big, but we were like I think nine or ten guys. And the same situation as in the welter. On the first climb, I was dropped. Like I was proper dropped. It was, it was like raining, it was cold, you know, everyone's got their rain jackets on. I'm the only guy there, like, you know, just with a jersey, my arm warmers and stuff. And I was lucky enough to take the advantage on the downhill to get back on. You know, these guys are with their rain jackets and all this, you know. I knew the downhill, so I could just smash it. Got back on, and then there was there was two teams from behind that were still chasing because uh, there was also Garate in the front from Rabobank, Jens Voigt, Chavanel, few other guys, mm-hmm. like super strong guys. There were just two strong guys there for the GC. So the, the bunch didn't want to let the group go. So, What were you thinking in this company and also getting dropped already on the climb? Were you, also, were you starting to think then, uh, you know what, I'm just here for the ride today. When these guys want to ride off, they're probably just going to ride off on me. Or were you still confident about the win? Oh, no way. No way. After mm. On that first climb, I just pretty much I was destroyed. I was like, nah. Even if I get back on the next climb, I'm going to be dropped. I was thinking like, okay, I'm just going to have to try for as long as possible to hang on and and see what happens. Yeah, totally. But then, uh, like, I, I on the downhill, like, I got back on like super quick. So I knew I, I kind of like 
like I knew on the downhills, like, man, I'm going way faster than these guys. So I just kept on going. I rode straight past them, kept on going, and I was like thinking, I need to split. I need to split the group so that the group that we're smaller and that the group that they'll drop back to the peloton and hopefully the peloton will stop, and they will at least you know give us maybe two or three minutes. And even even then, like I was like, even if that does happen, it's just going to give give me a little bit of or give us three guys a little bit little bit of breathing room for the next one or two climbs. You know, they're still going to come from behind because it's such a hard stage. I don't know. Like, yeah, it, it happened like it did. We were three guys in the front. The other guys dropped back to the peloton. The peloton stopped. We kept on going straight away. We had two, three minutes. Then, you know, there were there were a few attacks from behind, but, you know, just solo attacks where they couldn't really bridge across. And throughout the day, just because it was so cold, especially on top of the climbs, it was only like six, seven degrees. And I just, I, I have no idea. I just started to to feel, not necessarily feel stronger, but I just felt Didn't get worse. Yeah. Yeah. Like where a lot of guys in the cold, they just, they just suffer. They just lose their energy. For example, if that day was 30 degrees, on that first climb, I I would have been dropped and that would have been my day done. And yeah, I just, yeah, that the other two guys, the the Spanish guy and Shava, like already, already on the third climb, Shava, you know, he started to drop the wheel and, you know, my director in in the in, in the earphone, he was like, "Hey, look, you better wait for him." Or he's, I don't know. He, I think he's he's just playing with you. I don't know what's going on. Just wait for him. This is still this is Sylvain Chavanel, yeah, yeah. It's still a long way to the finish. You guys, you know, you need to work together. You know, share share the work. Then um, next climb, the same thing happened, and uh, Shava just started to drop, and I was like, because me and Shava, we we used to battle each other like crazy in the classics anyway. You know, in Flanders, mm. in Rabay. Newsblood, Kurna, Harold Becker, it was, you know, we'd always be like either in the same group or even both of us up the road attacking. So we knew each other very well. And I was like, man, what is he doing? It's like, this is not normal. Like, he's just playing with me. <laughs> and I, then I just thought on the next downhill, like these were proper climbs, you know, these were like 10, 12K climbs. So you also had 10, 12K downhills. So on the next downhill, I was just like, no, nah, stuff it. I'm just going to smash it. Then, uh, yeah, I just, I just, I had to keep on going to the finish. And then, yeah, that was, that, that was, uh, that was it. Tell me about, because I've just recently watched the replay of this and you've got quite a lot of time. This is quite a rare thing for guys who win, I can imagine, especially you who win a lot of your races sprinting. Um, you had time, you know, the peloton wasn't coming down on you. You had a few minutes back. And you sort of got the call, you looked across at the board, you saw there was quite a lot of time and the emotions started rolling in. And I guess, especially at 1K to go, you had enough time to really go, I've got this in the bag. You could sort of coast in. And as you can see from the footage, the emotions really did come in and actually sort of brought a tear to my eye. I was like, you were you know, crying as you went across the line. I was like, wow, it meant a lot to you. What was that last a K or I don't know how long before you sort of knew... I've got this in the bag. What was that like? <laughs> oh, I'm starting to tear up now. <laughs> oh, just yeah, just something I'll never forget. Like all all the hard work, you know, it just it pays yeah. off for moment moments like that. And also, really, I didn't really realize it until a K to go, where things really started to set in. And uh, mm. and then I just I just knew that my parents would be at home watching. Mm. And <laughs> yeah, it was 
it was something I'll never forget. And it was just like all these emotions started going through my through my head and like flashbacks, you know, always mm-hmm. like training at home with dad after school, you know, and him following me in the car, doing motor pacing or traveling with me everywhere to the races. And I was just, I had my parents in my, in my head. And yeah, it was, it was pretty special. Yeah. You can feel it. And I'm going to put the link up for everyone who doesn't know it. That's stage uh, 13 of the 2009 Tour de France. Um, if you want to quickly Google it while you're listening to this, but you've got to go back and watch it. I want to talk about one other special victory as well, and maybe it doesn't have the same emotion, but I think it's got a lot of power in it because later on in your career, you decided, you know what, I want to go back to my roots. And it was around about 2009, 2010, you actually denounced your citizenship with Germany, or I don't actually know how to say it correctly, but you got back your passport with Australia and you said... I want to race for Australia, so that means I need to be an Australian res- uh, citizen, so I'm going to be that. And then you went on and raced with Australia in, since then, six world championships for Australia. But since then, in 2005, uh, 15, you decided to come out and race the national champs. And I was there that year. I happened to be in the breakaway with you later on in the day. <laughs> and yeah. we had a little bit of a joke out there. I thought, oh, yeah, Hino's out here. Eventually, it's a pretty brutal course if anyone doesn't know it it's 5k up 5k down and um you know i'll see you after the race hino let's have a beer whatever and um he goes on and and wins the national championships but what i love about that is since i've got to know you personally i've understood how truly australian you are and how proud a proud australian you are of your heritage and for me it was you were such a fitting winner not only winner but wearer of that jersey for the following year Tell me a little bit about that period of changing and going back and trying to race for Australia and then actually wearing the colours in the pro peloton for a year. Well, the thing was I never actually uh, was selected uh, to do the World Championships uh, during my time with um, Gelsteiner because I had such a great year in 2009. Obviously, um, the the German Federation, they they came to me and they said, hey, look, we we want you to be at the World Championships. And I was just like straight away, I was just like, sorry, guys, that's just not happening. The thing is, I, I went through their system, you know, I used their system. They, they, they invested also a lot of money in me. You know, they paid all my boarding, my schooling, you know, I, I, I raced with them. I used their bikes, their clothing and everything. So, you know, I'm very thankful for, for that. But, you know, like I said, if I had the choice to represent a country, then obviously it's going to be for Australia. So then we started to go through that process of um, getting my Australian. I mean, I still had my Australian passport. It's not like I didn't have it. But the problem was that I already represented Germany uh, as a junior and as an under 23. So we went to Pat McQuaid mm. and we said, hey, look, what's how, how, how can we do this? And how can we do this very quickly? Uh, which didn't turn out to be that, that, that easy. And also uh, it took actually almost over a year. To do it because I had to do give it, back yeah. my German. I, I had to give back my German passport, and then you know there's a lot of things that you know you have to prove that you have an Australian residence or Australian uh, bank account or health insurance and, and stuff like this. But <laughs> I don't have any that kind of stuff because I left when I was like 13 or 14. So it was a lot of paperwork, a lot of back and back and back and forth, back and forth, and it, it took over a year to do. And um, then finally in 2010 in the summer. 
uh, I got my oh, how do you, how you say it? I didn't. Yeah, I got my Australian Australian citizen citizenship back, which is also I mean it wasn't that easy because I had to get here uh, like a like a visa so I could live in Germany. Yeah, it would have been so was, weird, mate. It was it was a pain in the ass. It was just it, it was really really <laughs> really a lot of paperwork and stuff like you know. Then I had to fly back to Australia, and you know, someone had to vote for me, uh, like vouch for me, you know, like you know, with a picture, yeah, and they had to like, for sign you. Yeah. it. It's like, oh, it's have to, do, you know. So I mean, everything worked out good, and uh, my goal was to to ride in in Geelong at the 2010 Worlds. Then I had some really bad knee injuries, and I had a really bad crash in Tour de Suisse where um, I had to get operated on my knee, and my season was done. Then um, the the year afterward and year afterwards and a few other years after that, I had the chance to represent Australia, which you can also say yourself is um, it's also you know the guys get together, you go out there mm-hmm. and you race you race for the win. Everyone sacrifices themselves for for the leader, and that's also that's why I love I loved racing for Australia. Or I love racing for Australia because it's that kind of like I was talking about with Savello. The guys get together. Mm. You go out there and do your job, and it's yeah. I don't know. It's also the Australian mentality, you know, just like just hard ass workers. You go out there and you just do it. No hidden agenda. Yeah, yeah, and also to put on, you know, the national colours for the first time is also like just super proud. You know, just chest out, mm. shoulders back, and like, <laughs> yeah, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, so what was it? Yeah, fifth. 15, oh. yeah. Tell me about this then because you get to wear it the whole year, which is like sort of the dream, you know? Not oh, only winning the race, but it's like the pride of it. And, I mean, also, look, let's be honest. The national Australian jersey is, is the best-looking look, jersey in the peloton. So it was, uh, <laughs> it, was really, it was really something special. It was absolutely – I mean, I, I have the jersey downstairs hanging up on the wall. You know, sometimes when I do my, my intervals on the rollers downstairs, you know, I look up at it and it also just, it gives you like a little bit of a drive. Like, you know, that's you know, for moments like that. It's like, you know, that's why you, you're putting in all the hard yards for these small, small things that give you like satisfaction. And it was, it was also something very, very special because my wife was pregnant with, with twins. So we knew that they were going to be around about coming around about April. When you have kids, you can't just run around the world and do what you want. You know, when you have kids, everything changes. Before it was cycling was number one, and when they're born, then you know the family is number one, and everything else mm. uh, comes afterwards. So I, I was like, okay, I said to my wife, look, I'm not. I said to her, look, I'm not going to be here in the winter, but just give me this last chance. You know, I want to go. I want to go down and do the nationals, and I want to have. I want to have a go at it because after this, when we have kids. It's not like I can just go to Australia for six weeks or two months and just train there and not be at home. So uh, back then also Dave Tenner was in the team uh, with IAM yeah. and we were like, okay, let's go down early. Let's go down already early December and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do a training camp. We'll get, we'll get used to the heat and we'll really try and have a crack at the, at the Nationals like together as a team. So uh, we, we done that. Everything was good. Our form was good and uh, – we turned up to nationals, and nationals is kind of special race because you know either a big group goes at the beginning and it stays away, or or it comes back, and then the big guys they go again in the last couple of laps. So our idea was that I go with the early break, and Dave stays uh, put in the, in in the peloton, 
just in case it does come back together. So when it does come back together, he's still fresh and he can maybe go with the guys like like Gero or Richie Port or Gero, guys, yeah, 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 like guys like that. So straight away, this big group goes like twenty six riders, I think it was, or twenty seven. You you were also, you were also in the in the, that first group or not? Yeah. Yeah, it just uh, it didn't. We didn't really get that much time. We did have a few minutes, but it didn't really stretch out as much as I would have liked to, anyway. And then the guys started not working like properly or hundred percent, and then the, the the peloton started to come back uh, lap by lap. Then I can't remember with how many laps to go. Maybe five or six. We got caught. Then um, I remember saying to ten, I was like, "Mate, I'm absolutely stuffed. You know, I'll try, I'll try and lead you in the, into the climb." that's my day done like I'm done. I'm done then already on the next lap the the next group went and just over the top I was like oh I might be able to bridge across and I just jumped across and I found myself somehow in the in the in the in the breakaway group again and Tanner was <laughs> in the back and I was already like oh mate I'm, I'm I'm done I've just I've worked too hard already I've just I've burned all my matches I can't like there's no use of me being here like you know like then um we were lucky enough i think there was a few guys uh, from jack bobridge's team which were really you know pulling hard you guys were also pulling hard because uh caleb was in in, in the front group this was the and group then- so this was the group i was in because i remember now having this conversation with you i was in that second group and i remember going this moment you just said then because now there's actually truth to the story you were buggered because you had this conversation like Mate, I've been out there in that other break all day. Now I'm in this break. I'm actually just punching a ticket here. Oh yeah, I was. I was like, I was sure. Next lap, if if someone lights it up on the climb, I'm, I'm gone. And lucky enough, uh, things settled down a bit because I think you guys were just pulling the whole time for Caleb, right? Yeah, that's right. Because he you, was a sprinter. You, he was a like he could have wrapped it up. Me, Hepburn. I think it was yeah, just me, yeah, Heppy, yeah. and um, and Caleb. And then uh, yeah, just lap by lap, you know, I was like, oh. Getting a bit close to the finish. The, the, obviously, the, the group every lap got started to get smaller and smaller. Then the, the attacks always on the climb they started to happen. And then I just found, we, I found myself in the last seven eight guys with uh, two laps to go. So one and a half laps to go on the on the on, on the climb. I don't know why. I don't know why I done it, but I just attacked myself and absolutely absolutely blew my tits off. And um, Bobo, Caleb, all the guys that just went straight over me, but. There were still six guys. So they all sprinted to the top, like going all out. And then on top, they kind of pretty much, you know, started to look at each other, you know, like, oh, yeah, I didn't get away. So we're still too many. Weren't uh, working working very well together. And I got back on the downhill. We come around for the bell lap. And I like I was already cramping up and everything. And I knew, okay, they're, they're going to attack on this climb again. I just need to, I, I'm not going to surge with them. I'm not going to do 700 or 800 watts. I'm just going to stay. Once I start, I'm just going to stay on my 500 and try and get back on the downhill, like like I did last lap. And lucky enough, the same thing happened. Caleb, I mean, Caleb was the strongest on the day. Yeah. And he just, you know, to, to be honest, he didn't ride that. That didn't ride very smart. And um, he just <laughs> attacked. He attacked like crazy. I when he attacked, I was like, I, I, I that was very very impressive. Like my my, my jaw almost hit my handlebars. <laughs> and I was like, he's, yeah, I was like, he's gone, he's gone. But I think his problem was he just went all out like a one-minute sprint. Everything what he had, he probably averaged like nine hundred watts. And I think he probably just got to the top, and he just didn't have, you know, just didn't have the power to, to keep it, keep it going. And then bit by bit, 
the two groups came back together. Then they started to look at each other, you know, then one guy would do like a kind of attack and then they'd pull it back together. Then the pace would slow down. And then eventually again on downhill, I got back. Also, the, things like this, you, you never you never forget, you know. It's like, mm. this, this is like one thing, like the last kilometer I have in, like in my brain and I will not forget. Just, um, How did uh, it go? I think it was, yeah, uh, Miles, Miles uh, Scottson. Was it Mascots? Yeah. AMC. He 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 done a flyer with like one K to go. I remember Bobo. Caleb Caleb was on Bobo's wheel. Bobo like directly tried to close the gap. And which he he he, he kinda he kinda could or and, and he did in the end. And it was also it was a headwind to the finish line. I think it was uh, what's his name? Niels Funderbluck. He was he yeah, he was on Caleb's wheel and I just I just I just knocked him out, like knocked him off the wheel. It was like being <laughs> I was I was actually an asshole. Like, but I was like, man, this is for na- this is for the championship. This is for the sprint. Like, what, and once I got back on, I was like, I, I seriously believe, I was like, I can win this. I can, I can really win this today. You thought you could beat Caleb because if anyone doesn't know, as the nationals course goes, you come off this descent and you sort of do a, a right, a left hand turn with about three hundred, three k to go, and it still descends down, and it almost shoots you out onto this like five hundred meter flat slightly down open big road you can see the finish it's all presented in front of you and it's very easy to make a mistake like i've got speed i'm going to hit out it's actually fast but it's quite a long way and caleb yeah. was the new was the new man on the scene like he just won not that it means anything to anyone outside of australia but the bay crits were the the thing in the summer and if you were going well there you're a sure thing for the nationals and whatever else was coming and he was killing it so yeah you you felt confident in this situation yeah I, I don't know why but it's like kind of like once i got back on i was like yeah i i, I, I really i have a good shot at this and that's why when when neil neil thunderplug was on on his wheel i just i didn't care it's not it's not like i you know it was like a, like really bad like you'd get disqualified or anything but we we're like we were fighting for the wheel and i was just like no way mate i'm not this is my like this is my wheel, <laughs> and um, like you said, it's a long straight, and you can really if you calculate if you if you get it wrong, then you're going to hit the front too early. And uh, yeah, Caleb, like I remember, like I was on his wheel, he hit out. It was like two fifty to go, and I was on the wheel. I didn't even stand up, and already then I was like licking my lips. I was like, that's <laughs> that's done. It's mine. I waited. I waited. <laughs> I waited. I waited, and then I just came out of the slipstream. And yeah, the rest was history. It was it was amazing. It, was, it sucks. Oh. And then you know, and then a week later it was two down under wearing the, the national colours. It was just like unbelievable. I think like, and this is a moment, and I want to just briefly talk about this before we go to current day. What's happening at the moment with you? But it seemed like you found your spot again then at I am cycling. Um, you know, following Cervelo test team, you did a couple of years where Cervelo merged with Garmin, which seemed like a bit of a, a funny sort of transition couple of years for you. But it felt like you found your legs at I am. And in the middle of that contract there, you won the national champs that you spoke about. But again, you started to find your form in the in the classics. You're again six at Roubaix. You're up there top 10 at you know, Flanders again, you know, just outside the top 10 at San Remo in those years or in the top 10 at San Remo in 216. So things were happening again there. It was a really good feeling at IM Cycling. From the outside, again, it sort of seemed like different to Cervelo, but 
a bit more of a family feel than, say, Garmin, Cervelo, which was a merging sort of team and maybe Gerlsteiner even back in the day? Yeah, uh, definitely. IM was uh, very, very, at the beginning, it was very similar to Cervelo. It was a new team and uh, a, a mishmash, like a, a mix of, of, of all different guys, different types of riders from different countries. And yeah, it was definitely, it blended well, very, very well together. And our, our boss from uh, who owns a company, IAM, uh, Michel Tatar, he is also such such a generous, friendly guy, uh, which is something I'm, I'm not saying other guys aren't friendly, but uh, this, this guy was uh, like nothing I've ever seen in the sport before, like always just always happy, in a good mood, and that's also the way he was in, in his company, spreading that, not spreading the love, but spreading that good energy. And he was a re- he was a real believer because his company was so successful. You know, also to to be to, to be that way in the cycling team. And in the end, the team was actually very very good. But it also, uh, it, like with Gelsteiner, was was I mean, Cervelo did merge with Garmin, but obviously, um, yeah, in the end, I am they. Um, Pulled the pin. They had their success. They they reached what they wanted to do. Their 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 biggest dream was to be finishing a top ten at, at the Tour de France, which they did. And um, for him, that was okay. That's sort of what all he wanted to do, and he, he, he done that. And then he still he still does a lot with the the juniors and under twenty threes in cycling in Switzerland. But um, he he reached his goal, and then then yeah, he said yeah, that's enough. But um, it was it was it was a great team. Let's talk about 2021 now. We've got the new season coming, and that's actually what I wanted to talk to you about today, but I just could not ignore your whole career, and I hope everyone's enjoyed it as much as I have going through all that, and we've skipped over so much, but I've tried to pull out the best bits. 2021 is coming. We've just had a pretty interesting year in 2020, but what I want to talk to you about is the preparation for 2021 or preparation for any season. You're going on with Bahrain. What's Bahrain called now? Bahrain McLaren. What's it called this year? Uh, Bahrain Victorious. Bahrain Victorious. You've signed on for them yep. for a few more years, which is going to take you up to almost 20 years being pro, which is ridiculous. But in this period of riding for so long, you've found this new sport, which I've just discovered in the last winter cyclocross and i did actually want to ask you a few questions about this but we might have to do it as a little bit more punchy answers because i have absolutely loved watching this and everyone's become aware of this because of the household names now of walt van art and who's a world champ (laughs) matthew (laughs) matthew vanderbilt he's the king he's the king of cycling he's the god mathieu Um, Even my kids know who who he is. We're going to have to break down cyclocross. Run me through the basics because now you're actually out there racing with these guys and it's not as easy as everyone thinks, you know, like just get there and, yeah, you have to have a few skills and it's more or less like road racing with a bit bigger tyres. Uh-uh. I've started to understand a little bit more. Run me through the basics and tell me what it's like. How long is a race? You know, what is the race format, the bike tyres? 
you know, bike changes. Yeah. Run me through, if you can, what cyclocross is. Well, first off, just to also just to, to agree with you, I honestly, before I before I started doing cyclocross, which I started last year in the winter, I've done a few races, I honestly thought the guys that do cyclocross are just the guys that don't have the engine to turn pro. That's what I honestly thought. I thought they, these guys, you know, they turn up to a paddock in the mud, they race around, they have a laugh, and afterwards, you know, they, they'll drink a Belgian beer. That is honestly what I thought. I got taught the absolute opposite. Uh, I'm lucky enough, to, one of my good friends here, he lives in Freiburg, called, his name's Sasha Bieber. Uh, he's a cyclocross rider, so, and he's been doing it pretty much since he was a kid. And uh, we, we, used, we always train together in the summer. Then um, uh, riding from Merida, so they have cross country, they have uh, cyclocross bikes. And I seen it and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll get a cyclocross bike. Hmm. But not necessarily do racing, but just to train here in the winter because it's really wet and snowy. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just, you know, for training. And then he's like, um, hey, look, there's this race around, around the corner, like down the road. You should just come just, just for a bit of fun, just race. And I was like, oh, no way, mate. I'm not, not going to race. I don't have any skills. I can't, you know, I don't even know how to pick up a bike or run with it or anything. Yeah, just one thing led to another. It was like, it's it, it just was addictive. Right, so the race is one hour. The season uh, goes normally from September through till maybe end of February. The races, especially this year, has been really muddy. So it's it's really it's really hard on the bikes. Yeah, I remember just one race, like for example in Herentals, where White Van Art won. Uh, on my bikes, I, I, I had new brake pads and dicks on the bike before the race, and already halfway through the race, everything was just gone. It was already it was already metal on metal, oh the, the, because all the sand, the mud, the, it just gets in, into everything. You know, after on the start line, already after three hundred meters, all you hear is just <laughs> because all from all the guys that are racing, just all the the, the chains, the discs, everything is just rubbing, and it's just, it just, it wrecks the bikes. Like the bikes, it's, it's just. Well, tell me, it's, it's, tell it's, me about the the bike changes and the mechanics, because this is something that doesn't happen in any other riding race that I know. Is that you can have two bikes and there's a pit, and you know you can swing in once or twice a lap or once a lap, I think, and change your bike. And your mechanics there, he washes the bike. What what actually happens with that? Tell tell us about that part. I mean, the, the big guys like Walt or Mathieu or some of the other, the big names like Tonarts or Isabit, you know, I, th- I think they'd, they'd probably have anything from five to six or seven bikes. They have their own mechanics. They turn, like, it's really professional. You know, they turn up there with their canvas or their buses. They have two or three mechanics. They have a Swanee. So they'll, they'll, they'll be changing bikes probably. If it's really, really muddy, you can even change your bikes like twice a lap because normally wow. there, there's a pit zone where the mechanics are, they, they have the bikes there, they wash down the bikes with the high-pressure hose, like they, they, they're there with their tools or whatever in case something's broken, in case they need to fix it, with spare shoes or a spare helmet. And normally you cross this pit area always twice in the race. So depending on, mm-hmm. the, on how bad the circumstances are in the race or the conditions, you can actually change twice per lap. What but do you yeah, do? Like, oh, well, look, I only have two bikes and I don't really... I don't have a mechanic or anyone, so it's it's been pretty. It's been it's so, been quite. So epic. what do what, what, what do you do when you swing into the pits? You just quickly pull, get off your bike, give it a quick hose down, get on your other bike, and leave it there. Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, I've been work, I've been uh, doing all these races together with my friend Sasha. So if they if he if he's not like if his mechanic is not 
busy cleaning the bike or anything, then I can change bikes. If you're doing it by yourself, it's it's very demanding, very, very hard because, mm. you know, you're there after the race in the cold, cleaning down the bikes or, you know, just getting stuff ready. You're still in your dirty kit. You know, all the other guys, they go off to the to, to their buses or their campers, they have a shower and you're still there, wet, muddy. You know, knowing the next day is the race, you've got to, you've got to clean the bike down and get it ready for the next day. And, you know, it's, it's also like it's been – it has this winter really hasn't been easy because – because of the coronavirus, pretty much there's only racing in Belgium. So there's no other mm-hmm. racing in Germany or Switzerland or Italy. Any smaller races, it's it's really only, you can kind of say it's only the Champions League. It's mm-hmm. only the big races in Belgium. So, so that makes it difficult for you to go there as, I guess you as call a, yourself a bit of a, a novice, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I'm a pure amateur, mate. These, these guys are so strong and so unbelievably, like, talented in their skills and the way the way they can ride in the mud or the downhills and the corners it just it just blows my mind away like you you know you think you're a professional athlete in cycling you know you turn up to the start line and already at the start you know you have these little little i won't say kids but these little guys skinny 60 kilo guys from the gun after 100 meters they already have a 20 meter gap on you and then it's just after the first corner it's just a, it's for me it's just a time trial it's just because they're, they're just gone hey, but, what are the um, tactics in this race because from from viewing it from television it does essentially look like a time trial to a degree um there's a little bit of tactics where on the small sections if you've got another teammate there you can block um but at the end of the day the strongest guy sort of wins is that sort of how it goes Definitely, 100%. And, I mean, the, the, the two strongest guys in cross at the moment are Walt Van Aert. I won't say two strongest guys. I mean, Tom Pitcock, he's also very strong. But the real hard, hard races, I mean, like you've seen in maybe in Herentals or Dendermonde, like, you know, it's, it's either going to be Walt Van Aert or Mathieu van der Poel. Those guys are just, like, pure, like, racehorses. It, it just it just blows me away. Like in Dendermonde, I don't know if you've seen it, to where it was just pure mud. You were you were running more than actually riding. You know, like these these guys, they pick up the bike and they run through the mud like actually like rugby players. You know, like like gladiators. It's just their their mm. their bodies are machines. How right? do you train for this then? Yeah, it's just uh, I mean I'm, I'm lucky enough that I I have a guy here in Freiburg who who's been doing his his whole life. And has really been helping me out like crazy, uh, you know, with with uh, tactics, uh, technical skills, training, getting the bikes ready, giving me tips everywhere, because I'm, you know, like I only started last year. I'm 36 years old. I'm pretty much the oldest rider rider there. So I mean, you know, like it's just not normal. Like after the race, I just I'd go back to the pits and I'd just wash myself down. You know, I'd clean my shoes and stuff in the bucket. And everyone just looks at me like, "What are you doing here?" You know, it's like, <laughs> but I mean, I love, I love the sport. It is, it, it, it has grown onto me, and it, it, it's addictive. It is, it is absolutely addictive, and I love, I, I love it. It's absolutely amazing, and and the benefits I think that you, as a as a road cyclist, that you get out of it, it's just, it's it's ex- extreme. You know, for example, all these trainers out there these days. Every winter they have you doing these intervals and, you know, you're, you're always looking, okay, which intervals are going to give me the best best results or the best power or the best mm. gains or the biggest gains, you know? And for me, doing cyclocross is 
the, the gains are for for uh, for a road cyclist are just enormous, like massive. And I mean, I don't want to be too cocky, but I mean, I'm pretty sure you guys are going to see it in the classics because <laughs> I'm I, I, I already now I'm very 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 confident. Well, let's talk about what's coming up. 2021, what does your race program look like coming ahead this year? And, um, you know, with last year's season affected, and you've just spoken about how your form's coming, is that is that going to affect you how the season was last year, racing so late or lack of racing? And how's your program going to look this year coming? Well, I mean, it's 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 going to be the same as it's been pretty much for the, for the last 16 years to do a good training camp in January. Uh, we're we're heading off to Altea near Calpe on the 16th. Then I'm going to come back on the 28th to the World Championships <laughs> in cross uh, on the 31st. Then um, I'll do another couple of cross races just because um, I think we're not. I won't be doing any other races on the road before the opening weekend. So uh, I've decided to still keep on doing a few cross races just for the intensity and I just just because I believe uh, believe in it that I'm going to get a massive advantage out of it. Especially with 36 years, you know, it's just you mm. you have to invest more, more and more and more into your training, you know, especially if you're a kind of classic guy, sprinter type rider, you know, you just lose that fast twitch, you lose that power, you lose that explosiveness, you know, you, you need to train it more, you turn you pretty much turn into an old old diesel. You can you yeah. do pretty much 400 watts. Not 400 watts, but, I mean, you can ride all day. But, you know, like I remember back in the day, I, I would never do sprint training. I would never do intervals like 20 seconds, 30 seconds, one minute or anything. But now it's like, you know, you, you need to do it almost every session just to, to keep up with these with these younger, younger guys. And that's the benefit of cross, you know. You're doing pretty much five 600 sprints per hour. And, you know, the, the, the acceleration, the, the running up the hills, the running up the stairs, jumping back on the bike and accelerating. It's just you're always, you're always above threshold, you know. You, your body has to kind of adapt to these micro recovery sections, you know, where you have to learn how to come get your heart rate down or recover within three, four, five, six, seven seconds, which sounds <laughs> impossible. But you do, you know, your body is – can. I wouldn't say it can adapt to everything, but it, it can adapt to a lot. And this, 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 this racing, I mean, and the thing is, there's a big difference between training and racing. You know, you can push yourself in training as hard as you want, but it's got, it's got nothing to do with racing. You know, once you pin on a number, there's a few guys next to you, behind you or in front of you, you know, you go, you ride until you drop because you don't want to let them pass or you don't, you know, or you want to hold on to the wheel mm. you're on in front of you. And the, th- the funny thing is, even at the start, you know, it looks it looks so easy when these guys do it, but it's absolutely not. You know, already at the start line, you're like, okay, I'm not gonna go over my limit, otherwise I'm gonna be blocked for the next ten minutes. Twenty seconds into the race, like you're already your heart rate's 190. You've got lactic acid coming out of your ears, and you're just like, you know, like, oh fuck, I've got, I've gone way too hard. Like my legs are just blocked. <laughs> but somehow you have to keep on going, you know, because there's guys pushing and shuffling, they want to pass you, and it's like. You just somehow you have to keep on going and race for race, training by training. It you know it gets it gets better and better. And like I said, I truly believe there's a massive advantage for us type of riders, road riders, to convert that onto the onto the road. Well, finally, Hino, I want to ask you, as you know, when we finally raced 
this year or last year, sorry, it was bang, bang, bang. And you might have heard and even you might have experienced it yourself. Everyone, well, even for me, like when I was watching the racing, it was pretty exciting because it was a big race on pretty much every second day or every weekend. There was like Tour of Flanders, and there was the Giro almost the same time. And then, you know, you had Ghent Wavelgamon and it was just awesome, you know. At the start, I didn't think it was that great, but it was just, it was great to view but also if your form was there you just had a great race coming how do you think it's going to feel now going back to a normal year do you think it's going to feel a little bit more slow paced do you think the crowds or the the public are going to enjoy a normal calendar year and do you think Uh, it's going it's it's going to happen do you predict a whole season's going to happen what do you think is going to change from now everyone's seen this new compact calendar how how's that going to affect this year it's, it's really hard to say, but I think obviously it's, the season's not going to go ahead 100% like it's been planned. Already now you can see races are being postponed or being, already being cancelled. And um, I think this is not just going to be next year. It's going to be for the next coming years. It's going to be a long time before anything settles down back to normal. And I think we were just lucky enough last year to see such exciting racing. You know, I've the, even the Tour de France, like I was absolutely blown away actually on – how exciting it was, you know, until the last minute to the last stage. Also, the Giro, the Welter, the Classics, it was the, the racing, I don't know, the racing this year was like pretty epic, like pretty up there with one of the best years mm. I've seen. I remember saying, you know, everyone or the team managers or press and reporters and stuff, oh, yeah, it's going to be a super slow year. The racing's going to be really bad. and Or not bad, but it's going to be slow. It's going to be one of the, the slower years because of, you know, all the lockdown and stuff, no, not racing in the spring. But the racing turned out to be absolutely amazing. It was very, very exciting. Also, as a rider, to watch the, to watch these ra- uh, races. What's going to happen this year then, when now it's going to go yeah, back to I, normal? You think it's going to be boring? No, no, I, honestly not. I think um, it's going to be exactly the same, you know. I mm. think uh, there's a lot of guys that um, maybe didn't, and then they may be underperformed this year, which are really eager to get back on their game for next year, especially in the Grand Tours. And, uh, in the, you know, in the, the sprint, the sprints, they're, they're becoming more, I won't say more open, but, you know, it's it, it, also the sprints are very tight these days. You know, one day it's maybe Caleb, the next day it's uh, Ackerman, the next day it's... Uh, um, Sam Bennett. Yeah, Sam Bennett. Sorry, Sam, I forgot his name. Yeah, you know, right. and and also the classics. Also, you know, just I, I'm I'm really also super excited to see this uh, at the Tour de France, uh, Wild Fun Art and um, Mathieu fight fight against each other. If they're going to both go for the green jersey, you know what I mean? Like it's oh, yeah, they've they been about that. they've been absolute arch rivals since they were kids. Like also the the Tour of Flanders, like that sprint, mate. It was oh. both both of them were absolutely absolutely cool cool as cucumbers and it was just like it's kind of like once Alaphilippe like crashed it was kind of like look we know we're not going to drop each other or we know we can't drop each other we're just going to ride to the finish and we're going to sprint you know and it's just <laughs> oh mate it's un- unbelievable uh, and that's what's also made watching the cross for me so interesting because I got to know Cross before those two returned and then when they returned, it's been really interesting to see the level of the other guys lift once the two rock stars came back and I think that's to a degree what's going to happen on the road is that, you know, we saw it with Peter Sagan, he stood out on his own for a while and then 
until the Peloton or a few people from the Peloton went, I've got to lift my game to, to compete with Sagan. Now we've got these new guys coming through with Philippe. I get the feeling this season's going to see a lot of guys sort of lift and, you know, um, you know, come to the level because it's just sort of what the natural progression has to happen. Um, I think we have talked long enough, Hino, and it has been so good to hear about all these stories, mate, especially this end part. I've really enjoyed chatting about cyclocross and hearing your opinion about next year. Mate, thank you very much for coming on the pod tonight. Mate, absolute pleasure. I mean, I think we could have talked for another three, four, five hours if you wanted to. But, Definitely. Um, we'll, we'll have a beer and we'll do that another time. Mate, thanks again and I hope everyone's enjoyed it. Well, there we have it. I hope you could hang in right till the end there. I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed talking to him and starting the season with a cracker, I thought. What would you think there, Lionel? It was a cracker. So many good stories in there, Mitch, and things that I remember well as well because I was covering the 2009 Tour de France and I remember that stage win he had into Colmar um, and the, uh, the weather conditions and just the way he pulled off that win. And it was a surprise because... It wasn't the sort of territory, the terrain that you would think this is a Heinrich Hausler kind of day because I think we still had him pigeonholed as as that fast finisher um, and even though he'd had those classics results, we thought of him as a, as a sprinter deluxe, I guess. But uh, um, no, really interesting conversation you had with him and certainly his thoughts on cyclocross were great. I love his uh, honesty about what he thought of the cyclocross world before he was prepared to get his feet muddy. I know, and that's what I loved about it. Just sort of put those guys up on a pedestal, which they should be, and now we're starting to understand why Van Aert and Vanderpool are the machines they are when they come across the road, and who knows how many more guys are going to come out of that sort of system. I think we've just seen the beginning of some new great road riders coming out or just great great cyclists themselves well will there be any riders going the other way i mean we've seen fabio aru doing some cyclocross races in italy this winter perhaps the the trend will reverse and people will go from the road to the cyclocross as they uh, realize that it might add something to their training and preparation for road races who knows i don't i i think maybe it could be something to do as training and you know, you're there sort of in the midfield. But I just think these guys who have done it from when they're very young are just going to be that two, three, four steps ahead. And it's just a complete different energy system. And it looks like the skill sets as well. It's just, uh, I've really enjoyed watching it. And that was the main inspiration to get Heinrich on this episode was I need to talk to someone who's actually in there and tell me exactly what it's like. Um, And it really did open my eyes to it. Well, if you really enjoyed that, make sure you hang in for this year. We've got Talking Luft up and running again. It's like the little DVDs extra package, and that's going to be over at Life in the Peloton's feed. So make sure you go and check that out next week. I've got Heino on there with some silly questions that we ask in Talking Luft. I've got a few more little questions in there from last year, from extra from last year. So if you liked that last year, and if you liked that episode, make sure you go and check that out over at Life in the Peloton. And for all Life in the Peloton fans, you may have seen something floating out on the interwebs, on social media, that something is in the works, something special is brewing up. I'm not going to say much more than that. 
do a little bit of research yourself, but hang in there. The next couple of weeks, I've got some news to drop. It's pretty exciting. If you like the caps, that's a little tidbit of information. There's something else coming on its way. Intriguing, Mitch. Intriguing. Just on the caps, Mitch. Thank you very much. You sent Richard, Daniel, and myself a life in a peloton casket i've been working on my luft i'll uh, i'll send you a picture when i've managed to perfect my luft but i don't know whether <laughs> you're you're going to be selling the hats again this year at some point but uh, anyone who wants one uh, keep your ears open because they're they're really smart design pink uh, a lovely rich indigo blue and the life in a peloton logo on the side thank you very much mitch oh good you well i just i just thought it was necessary you know if you're going to be riding around You've got to have the right cat on. And I thought, what better than a Talking Luft official cap or Life in the Peloton official? Well, guys, once again, thanks very much for listening. And hang in for two weeks' time. I've got a special guest coming on, Jack Thompson. You might know his name, Jack Ultra Thompson. So have a look, have a listen. That'll be there in two weeks. And until then, cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.